David Suisa. Welcome to my podcast. Today, my friend Haley Soifer is back in the studio. Haley, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back. The executive director of the JDCA, Jewish Democratic Council of America. So the most important organization that represents the Jewish Democrats, which is pretty much most of the Jews, correct? That's what I hear. About three quarters of the Jews have supported Democrats uh, since, since since we started bi- tracking this. <laughs> since so, the biblical times. <laughs> for, for many decades. Why is that? Why do you think? Well, I think it's about our values. And, you know, importantly, we put Jewish before Democrats in, in our, the name of our organization, JDCA, uh, because our politics is shaped by our values. Uh, our values such as, uh, you know, welcoming the stranger, and uh, love thy neighbor as thyself, and the fact that all people should be treated humanely. And these values, which are so integral to who we are as a people, have shaped our politics over time. So while our mission is is political, uh, again, our politics is driven by our values. But, you know, I have friends of mine on the Republican side, and they also use Jewish values, and they say that you know, sort of limits, boundaries, uh, modesty, personal responsibility. They also claim that their views are also based on Jewish values. How do you respond to that? Well, you know, I I would never define someone else's values for them. uh, If that is what an individual feels are their values, uh, you know, and they don't align with what we define as, you know, our Jewish values, fine, so be it. But, you know, it's it is integral to who we are as a Jewish people uh, and our history uh, to, to, you know, look at our history and look at the lessons we have learned. And by being turned away, uh, you know, before the Holocaust, for example, if you look at the St. Louis, uh, we should be welcoming those into this country. Um, we should be, uh, you know, treating others humanely. And we know in the Jewish community that, as I mentioned, about three-quarters of Jews are Democrats, uh, that, you know, the disapproval of Trump on the issue of immigration is higher in the Jewish community than any other issue, and that goes well beyond the 75% that identify as Democrats, because this is a values issue, and it speaks to our history as a people. Do you think sometimes uh, we go too far with emotion, for example, uh, compassion? So we have compassion for the stranger, and I guess this uh, enormous kind of collective point of view from Jewish Democrats that we must go to the border and show more compassion, which I totally endorse, by the way. Uh, but at the end of the day, is that enough? Because isn't the idea of solving problems a value as well? Um, so all we, so much of what we hear from the Democratic side is just the compassion part, which, you know, I'm there. I want the compassion, but what's next? So let's say we do everything that's been asked to do and we take a lot better care of the migrants and so forth at at the border, literally everything that is being asked, and then five million more migrants show up at the border. I mean, is there like some boundary at some point where the Democrats are going to just say, all right, it's compassion plus some kind of way of really addressing the problem? Well, to be clear, uh, you know, Jews aren't just voting on this issue. Um, I, and, and, and also, to be clear, we support border security. There has to be security at our border. But creating a, a huge wall and treating, uh, trying, treating migrants uh, the way this president has treated them in terms of separating families, discriminating uh, in terms of his refugee policy, policy based on religion, those are policies that are not consistent with our values. But if you look at other policies, such as providing Americans with access to affordable health care uh, or ensuring um, uh, individual rights, uh, reproductive rights, and uh, combating discrimination and um, 
you know, protecting our communities and our schools from this epidemic of gun violence uh, that has plagued us. Uh, these are other issues that Jews are voting on as well. And on every single one, uh, the Democrats are on one side of the issue. The Republicans are on another. And the Jews are aligning with Democrats because th those policies are consistent with uh, both Jewish, American, and Democratic values. Has he done anything good? You know who he is. Uh, the president, has he done anything good? Um, you know, I... I am trying to think of something. And, and she's looking, <laughs> by the way, as she's thinking, she's looking at our I'm looking most at controversial co cover story of the year yeah. by far, which Haley Sulfur was <laughs> on the cover. And there was a picture of the president. And the headline is the cancer or the chemo. Two views on the most divisive presidency of modern times. And Haley, you wrote the first one. And Larry Greenfield wrote he's the chemo. And I got to tell you, I mean, it's it's the most difficult subject, Haley, for me personally as the editor uh, to deal with because it's so, so divisive. And we have a lot of our readers are really grateful that he's the president because of what he's done for Israel and they see the economy and it's um, they have a whole case for how he may be, you know, personally kind of vile and that's why they call it the chemo. And then on the other side, there's your side, and I have a lot of sympathy for that, too. And it's an extremely difficult subject to broach. I mean, I don't know if you see that in, in your world, but I have some very close friends. If I bring up the name, it's like they get a skin rash or something. They get, like, physically ill. I have never seen anything like it. I mean, personally, I, I try to pull myself back and look at both sides and see if I can add anything halfway intelligent to the conversation. But it's difficult because it's just so emotional. It is. He's he's the most divisive president in our history. Um, but, in you know, I, I actually in some ways feel bad for Republicans. Uh, he's hijacked their party. Um, and when I look at, you know, even um, the Larry who wrote the piece defending the president, uh, in defending him from the Jewish perspective, it's difficult. It's a difficult case to make. In some ways, I had an easier job. Uh, and when I think about even the Republican Jewish coalition uh, or the Republican counter to what we are doing, um, you know, it's hard to defend this president. Uh, what he does and what he says, and even looking at the events of the past week, are vile. They're unconscionable. He used not only... Uh, racism uh, against four members of Congress, but he used us, Jews, and Israel as a shield for that racism. And, and it, we've seen Republicans try to defend it, and frankly, it's just indefensible. Uh, what the Republican Jewish Coalition did in response was they ended up condemning the chanters that we saw in North Carolina last week. They said, what the chanters in North Carolina were saying was vile, but stopping short of criticizing the president. And there's no question this stems from him. He is the commander-in-chief. He is responsible. Uh, he, it was his words that incited that crowd. And, you know, that's just from last week. It's we interesting because uh, th there's Jonah Goldberg this morning wrote a piece, and he's a big uh, Trump critic. And what he says, he said it was racist, xenophobic, and nativist, but probably not intentionally so. Um, and I'll just quote from his piece. It was, it, it is this ignorance of history that I think explains, though it doesn't excuse his tweet. Um, and he gives examples, and basically what he tries to say is that he's got bigoted ideas but like all ideas, they take a back seat to his narcissism and glandular impulsiveness. My unified theory of Trump is that he's a person with little to no interior life who responds to flattery and criticism with Pavlovian predictability. There's a huge difference between an explanation of Trump's behavior and an excuse for it. Um, but he doesn't think it's intentional. He thinks the guy's really, really just sloppy and nar narcissistic. What do you think about that? I completely disagree. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and, and actually, I don't know that the intent actually matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, he invoked uh, a xenophobic and racist slur against four women of color. And even lumping them together in and of itself was racist. Because let, let's look at the, the so-called squad. You have four different individual members of Congress, one of which has never said anything anti-Israel. One of which has not said anything anti-Semitic. Ayanna Presley from Massachusetts. Just you lump her together because she happens to be a woman of color who is friends with these other three members of Congress. That in and of itself is racist. You use this this trope, and I, yes, I'll, I'll call it a trope. It's not the first use of a trope. It's a racist trope that's been used uh, against migrants, about against communities of color, and yes, against African Americans for decades. And it's not his first use of a trope. He has used tropes against our community. He has uh, made dual loyalty claims. He has said to the Republican Jewish Coalition, I know you won't support me because I don't want your money and you want to control your politicians. Right there, there's two anti-Semitic tropes. So is his intent to be racist? It does not matter. He has emboldened racists. He has emboldened anti-Semites. He has emboldened white supremacists. They all see him as their ally. And there's a direct correlation between his words, the words of the crowds who were following him, and the actions that we've seen in terms of violence targeting our communities and communities uh, other minority communities in this country. Now, do you think the reaction from the candidates is the correct one right now in the Democratic Party in terms of their goal of replacing Trump? Are they doing the right thing? I've been reading a lot of stuff on how they're going too far left and overreacting. Well, again, I, I don't think we should. I don't think we should generalize uh, about. You know, groups well, of four groups of members of Congress hands. are all twenty-five. They they all have they have different policies. Uh, they they oh, we, we can distinguish among them. Yeah. I do think that the way that Democrats will win in twenty twenty, whether they're running for president or you know running for Congress, is to stand for something that is truly authentic, that represents values, and we can't win this election by making it about our opposition to Trump. It can't solely be about Trump. Uh, it has to be, because that's, that's frankly what he does, right? He uses hate and division, and, uh, and we, we've seen it recently. We've seen it through, through going back to 2016, his campaign. Uh, he runs incredibly negative messages, and he capitalizes on the worst uh, sentiment in us uh, in terms of hatred and fear. And Democrats shouldn't be going down that path and won't go down that path. They have different policies. Some policies are to the left. Some are more centrist on different policy issues. But I do think that the candidate who ultimately will prevail next year uh, is going to win because they stand for something that is more than just being against Trump. Well, but if they uh, if they don't just go against him, you got a situation now where the staples of the economy right? Near record low peacetime unemployment, 3.8%. Near record low minority unemployment, booming annualized GDP growth of 3.1%, and a record high stock market. It's like, what's their plan to make this better? Retail sales increased for the fourth straight month in, in June. The rate of Hispanic home ownership continues to increase. A quarter million new jobs were created in June with strong growth in construction and manufacturing. Record oil and gas productions seems to be increasing. Strong wage growth of 3.4%. This is from the Victor Davis Hansen uh, this morning. And you look at this situation, Haley, and you say, my God, you know, like things are going so well in terms of the economy. What message is there for the Democrats? Well, you know, First of all, some of the economic gains that we're making cannot be attributed to Donald Trump. If you look at, for example, his tariff policies, I mean, he's he's creating these huge tariffs, and and actually the the uh, you know. The result of that is going to to um, impact the consumer here in the United States. Even if he doesn't understand the way tariffs work, we as consumers are going to see the result of that. Uh, some of the economic progress that we are making is a direct result of the foundation that was laid by the last administration, the Obama administration. But importantly, you know, Americans aren't voting solely on the economy, and Jews in particular are not voting 
solely on the economy. We uh, we know based on polling that Jews are voting on domestic policy issues. The top issue for the Jewish electorate, similar to the American electorate in the 2018 midterm elections, was access to affordable health care. And that's one of the reasons that, Democrat, that Democrats won in 18. Americans don't want their health care to, to be taken away. They don't want the repeal of Obamacare, which is why, or the Affordable Health Care Act, which is why Republicans will never win on that issue. But um, Medicare for all, it's like eliminates 150 million people's insurance programs, and most of the uh, candidates right now are going for that, Medicare for all. Well, not all, not all. Even Biden is kind of moving along to it, but the major ones are. Yeah, I mean, and we know that Americans are also voting on Medicare and Social Security. They are voting on gun control. I'm talking about Jews now. Uh, they are voting on the rise of white supremacists, which mm -hmm. they associate with the president. And this is a very important issue to talk about because the other issues that I've discussed, you know, that has been kind of a constant in the Jewish community for some time. We are a values-driven electorate. We vote on our values. Uh, they are mostly... They end up being mostly domestic policy issues, uh, and that's been a constant. Uh, support of Israel is very important to us. Uh, over 90% of uh, Jews, Jewish voters polled consider themselves pro-Israel, but they're satisfied with where the Democratic Party is on Israel, and they're voting on where there's the biggest distinction between the parties, which is on domestic policy issues. Something that is new in the Jewish electorate is the fact that we are now also voting on our own sense of insecurity, which Jewish uh, tribute to President Trump. And let me explain. So obviously we have seen these devastating attacks uh, in Pittsburgh, in Poway. We have seen the rise of anti-Semitism in this country. We've seen the, the growth and proliferation of hate groups and the rise of uh, white supremacists who feel emboldened by Donald Trump. No, this did not uh, emerge in 2016 or 17, but he has given these groups new life by legitimizing them. 73% of Jewish voters feel less secure than they did two years ago. And 59% of Jewish voters attribute the recent synagogue attacks, at least partially, to President Trump. So this is a new political issue for Jewish voters. We, uh, luckily, we've never faced anti-Semitism domestically in the way that we have in the past two years. And now that we are in this new reality, this is another issue that becomes an issue for Jewish voters. And Jews are voting on this issue. And they're concerned, and they attribute it to Republicans. Now, um, are you concerned when, speaking of Jewish uh, voters, there's a major anti-BDS resolution that was passed in the House yesterday, and then there was a Democratic uh, representative, Rashida Tlaib from Michigan, who cited American boycotts of Nazi Germany during World War II uh, when she announced her opposition to the anti-BDS resolution. Does that kind of stuff concern you, Haley? Well, support of the U.S.-Israel relationship is also an important Jewish value that we are advocating for as a Jewish democratic organization. Uh, we, we strongly support the relationship. We reject uh, the president's efforts to politicize the relationship, including using Israel as a shield, as we saw last week, against his own uh, hateful, divisive uh, rhetoric and language and views. And uh, we support uh, bipartisan measures, as we saw that passed overwhelmingly in the House yesterday, in support of Israel and in opposition to BDS. Uh, Rashida Tlaib has made her views on Israel clear. She doesn't support a two-state solution. She supports the BDS movement. Uh, she doesn't support U.S. military aid to Israel. We, as an organization, spoke out against this back when she was a candidate for Congress. We said that that is not uh, consistent with our values. Even J Street, as you recall, uh, withdrew their endorsement of her because she doesn't support two states. But she does not represent the Democratic Party. She and uh, Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, who also supports the BDS movement. Well, she introduced a resolution last week to defend the right to boycott as the impetus for supporting PDS. So, I mean, they so make the so much noise. That's the problem. Well, but let's, let's talk about this. Uh, so she and Ilhan Omar represent two, two of 
280 Democrats in Congress right now. You have 235 in the House and 45 in the Senate. That is two of 280. If you do the math, that is 0.07%, not even 1%. And the media noise is 90%. It's well, huge. it depends which They're media like you're looking at. New York uh, Times, Washington well, Post, this is part CNN. Of... I'm on there every day, all day long, and it's unbelievable Let's how not much be media distracted exposure they by get. This. Yeah. Let's not, this is what the president wants. That's why he tweeted about, about them. He wants us to be distracted. He, he loves the so-called squad, not only because he can just rail against them and fire up his base with his hatred. He wants them to represent he the Democratic wants, Party. But the reality is that on Israel, they don't. They are two mm. of 280. And last night was a great reflection of exactly what I'm saying. 398 members of Congress voted for an anti-BDS measure. 209 Democrats and 109, or sorry, 189 Republicans, notably more Democrats than Republicans because we have more in Congress. But this was a bipartisan measure uh, against BDS in support of two states. So, you know, these kind of demonstrations, bipartisan support of Israel and importantly other uh, measures passed last night in the House, one supporting aid to Israel, uh, another sanctioning uh, terrorist groups. These are important measures, and there continues to be strong bipartisan support for Israel in Congress. And this measure would not have come up last night were it not for the the Democratic leadership that put it on the floor. And well, the it's Democrats the Problem Solvers Caucus, which you know I, what? I write about from both it's, sides. And I love that movement in Congress. Ultimately— Ultimately, they they you know they have come together, but importantly, it's the Democratic leadership that put this measure on the House. They decide what gets voted on. Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, it is the leadership that decides these things. Now, the resolution you're referring to doesn't mention Israel. It supports the right to boycott. And and yes, knowing Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib's uh, history on this movement, uh, I think it's fair to say that they're you know they. They, that this can be interpreted as an endorsement of BDS. We don't support this resolution for that reason. But importantly, that resolution doesn't mention Israel. The reason we don't support it, because you know it's important to support every American's, and we do support every American's First Amendment rights, is that not all boycotts are the same. You have boycotts throughout history uh, that you know have been demonstrations of efforts for social justice. Uh, but if you look at the BDS movement, it is not that. It is an effort to delegitimize Israel's right to exist. Mm -hmm. So to group BDS in, the BDS movement in and equate it with other boycotts throughout history. Which is what they're trying to do. Right. We disagree with that approach. Yeah. Do you have, um, I mean, you, you must have a really tough job because one of the big issues right now is this extreme polarization in the country and in our community. And it's very much based on what we call the political tribes. And there's a loyalty to political tribes that seems to supersede the loyalty to our Jewish tribe. So it's not so much what's good for the Jews, it's what's good for my party kind of thing. And then you, you're in a position where, I mean, you have, you're in a partisan position. That's your job. Uh, and yet we're almost at odds, you and I, because I try to promote bipartisanship. You know, that's why I love the Problem Solvers Caucus. It's you got a group of Democrats and Republicans and you never see them on CNN because it's not that sexy. It's not as uh, dramatic to have a show on pragmatic compromise as it is to have a show on a big fight between AOC and Pelosi. And you're right there in the partisan world, Haley. And do you ever think of bipartisanship or does your job just take you in just a whole other direction? Well, I, uh, you know, I, I came to this job a year ago from government. Uh, I worked for four members of Congress, and I learned very early on uh, during my, my first job on the Hill in the, in the Bush administration uh, the importance of bipartisanship. Uh, I have worked in, in the minority and in the majority, and uh, I, I understand the importance of bipartisanship. 
Um, and again, I don't even consider my role or the role of our organization as uh, partisan, first and foremost. We are a values-driven organization. And, you know, luckily, I'm in a place where I can honestly say that we are advocating not only for what we believe to be uh, what is consistent with Jewish values, or as you characterize it, what's good for the Jews, but also uh, those values happen to align with the Democrats. Uh, but aren't there opportunities, uh, Haley, when both parties can come together? I'm always looking for these kind of issues. Like, for example, all right, <clears throat> intersectionality where you get social justice warriors who are Jewish on campus and they want to fight for the rights of blacks with Black Lives Matter. They want to go, you know, fight for the rights of women, reproductive rights and minority rights and so forth. And they get kicked out because they're pro-Israel. You got to figure if there was one cause, Haley, that we can all get together, Republicans and Democrats, it would be against intersectionality. I think when it comes to Israel, there have been demonstrations of bipartisan, bipartisanship, and this has continued, including in the last 24 hours. The resolution that passed last night with overwhelming bipartisan support, I mean, we're talking about almost 100% of the Republican and, and Democratic caucuses. Uh, you know, that is, that is a true demonstration that bipartisan support for Israel remains strong. No. And, and it's actually a rejection, I should say, of the president's approach, which is to politicize this issue that's so important to the Jewish community. Uh, you know, th those polls that we see where the new generation seems to have more of an anti-Israel bias, which has nothing to do with you, by the way nor the Democrats, it's just the nature of the beast. It is what it is, um, that the new generation seems to be a lot more uh, anti-Israel, especially on the Democratic side versus Republican side. How do you, is that concern you for the future, that although it might be okay now, it's going in the wrong direction? We are definitely looking at engaging younger Jewish voters. Uh, not only because uh, there are definitely differences between our community, if you look at generationally, but also because they are less likely to vote. Uh, we as Jews uh, typically show up to vote, but unlike, um, you know, not unlike uh, the American electorate, uh, you know, younger voters in general, newly eligible voters, uh, you know, are not as likely to show up. Uh, so we as an organization are, are definitely targeting younger voters. And again, with a values-driven message, including the importance of a strong U.S.'s relationship that should not be politicized. And I agree, you know, there is there is a difference in the way that younger generations look at this issue. I don't know if it's as much uh, an, an opposition to Israel as it is just the fact that it it's it's not as integral to uh, perhaps their identity. They are voting mostly, and again, prioritizing, I should say, domestic policy issues. And with this divisive president, I think especially for younger voters, uh, the issues that are right in front of them uh, here in the United States, perhaps, you know, and, and we, we are continuing to do polling on this, uh, you know, take precedence in their view. It's important that we maintain that connection, though, to the U.S.-Israel relationship. And it's also important that it not be politicized because, again, younger voters are also overwhelmingly Democrats. And to the extent that they see this president uh, not only politicizing but personalizing the U.S.-Israel relationship, making it solely about him and Prime Minister Netanyahu, this is not in America's interest. It's not in Israel's interest. It's not in the interest of the Jewish community. These two leaders are going to come and go. Uh, parties will come and go from uh, leadership in both countries. This relationship must endure. So I think the way that the president has approached this issue has been uh, very dangerous and destructive in terms of when we look to future generations. Now, you've got these groups that have nothing to do with President Trump, uh, groups like If Not Now, for example, who go to you know Democratic candidates and ask for a condemnation of the occupation and so forth. They're not Zionist. It's on their website, and they create a lot of damage. They're very one-sided. They give you the Palestinian narrative. They don't promote complexity of the issue at all, and they're really making an enormous amount of noise. And for them, it's not abortion, and it's not the migrants. No, it's Israel. It's top of mind, and that is their one cause. How do you deal with that, Haley? What are you guys going to do about it? 
They were like, they make J Street look like the ZOA. <laughs> In wow. fact, they're a spinoff of J Street. Okay, I, I, you know, without you know who going I'm talking in, about, yes, right? I know exactly who you're talking about. Um, in fact, I, I appeared on uh, I24 with, um, with someone from If Not Now. Uh, How did wh- that what go? I said, it was fine. What I said is, is that you know, there's actually not a real division. If you look at all 24, I think we're at now 23 candidates. Uh, there's really not a huge distinction in terms of their Israel policy. Everyone supports a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Everyone opposes the global BDS movement. And yes, Bernie Sanders opposes BDS. There is a disagreement about how to legislate on this issue. But everyone opposes BDS. Everyone supports U.S. military aid to Israel. These candidates don't have a huge division among them in terms of Israel. So why create divisions where they don't otherwise exist? I think it's important for the Jewish community to hear from these candidates about the issues that we know we're voting on, which are domestic policy issues, similar to what you were talking about before, health care and other issues, where, where they all do have slightly different policy positions. Uh, on Israel, there's not a huge difference, so let's not create them where they don't exist. Now, speaking of positions, you had our most read article of the year, by far, in uh, the cover story a few weeks ago. We mentioned it earlier. What was the reaction like from your end? I mean, it was so explosive. <laughs> um, well, first of all, I appreciated the opportunity to to write uh, a long-form piece. I mean, you know, for, for those who don't write, um, maybe they don't appreciate that when, when a person writes an op-ed, typically for a newspaper, they're asked to keep it very, very short. 700 words for us. And yeah. so that's what I typically do. I have a piece, last week it was on CNN.com, American Jews don't want to be used as Trump's political pawns. It has to be short, right? right. You gave uh, me the opportunity and, and Larry the opportunity to write uh, about a very complex issue, recognizing it was going to take more than 800 words. And so I appreciate that. I also appreciated that uh, that it was not just my piece or Larry's piece in a vacuum, that they were presented alongside each other. I think this is this is a, a great demonstration of bipartisanship in terms of uh, the debate that's currently happening in our country. Uh, so the response has been fairly positive. Um, you know, I hope that for anyone who saw the title and looked away and maybe may have sent you an angry letter, uh, I, I, I hope that they would take the time to read it. I know it takes a little while. It was 2,700 words. But uh, I, I would hope they would take the time to read it because there, there is a lot that maybe even those who side with Larry on this issue might agree with in my piece. And, uh, you know, similarly, uh, perhaps, you know, we can see eye to eye on some issues. Did you see anything in his piece that kind of surprised you, give you a head nod or something? What did you think of his piece? Oh, it was thoughtful. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I didn't agree with much of it, but I think that we can both agree uh, that we as Jews are deeply concerned about the rise of anti-Semitism in our country. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as you identified, when you gave us this frame, we might disagree about some of the root causes. Right. I th- people really responded well to the idea, generally, except for two, one or two exceptions uh, who took it personally, but the idea of cancer and chemo seemed to represent the intensity of emotions in the community right now and among the people who are sort of pro-Trump, they recognize that uh, he's doing things that are very, very messy and chemo is really, really messy. Uh, and, and I think they responded to the metaphor. But I'm not going to let you off the hook because at the beginning of our interview, I asked you if Trump has done anything good and I forgot to follow up on that. And I know my listeners are real nitpickers. So has he done anything good? Trump has he? Well, you besides know. <laughs> lighting the Shabbat candles Friday, I think um, I was glad to see him uh, say that he didn't agree with the protesters last week. Um, you know, he said something along the lines of, "You know, that wasn't good," or you know, he wasn't happy. He said, he, "You know, wasn't happy to see them chanting, send her back.'" Um, that was that was that was a fairly positive moment. However, you know, again. He demonstrated a, a complete lack of self-awareness by recognizing that they were echoing his his tweet, his remarks over mm-hmm. the subsequent, you know, the previous, sorry, a uh, few days. Uh, so, you know, every every so often he will try to walk back 
Uh, we even saw him try to do this after Charlottesville. He'll, he'll they'll tr- have this revisionist history where he'll try to walk back because maybe he recognizes he's gone too far. Sloppy, impulsive. Yeah, it doesn't let him off the hook, though. Exactly. He said it. It exactly. was racist. I had a conversation with a good friend of mine, and she abhors Trump. And then I asked her, I said, do you feel the same way about the 63 million people who voted for him? And she did a double take. She said, I never thought of it. Maybe I don't like him as much either, you know? So how do you deal with that? Somebody you really, really, really do not like, and then 63 million Americans can't be all racist. No, I, I don't think they're all racist, and I wouldn't, you know. I, right. But I'm, I'm uh, no, I, I was being facetious. <laughs> but, was, um, and, and importantly, three million more did vote for Hillary Clinton. <laughs> I'll just say that. But I think. Um, why, why did they? Why, why did he get so many votes? Well, if, yeah. you know, I think that uh, hatred and fear, um, which we've seen kind of characterize his rhetoric and, and even his policies, uh, does motivate uh, people. Uh, it motivated his base, certainly. Um, and it was a combination of that. It was, it was also the fact that uh, a lot of people strongly dislike the Democratic candidate. Uh, you know, you can look at that campaign and dissect uh, where mistakes were made, perhaps where certain uh, states were taken for granted that were lost by very slim margins. But on the day of Robert Mueller's testimony, I think it's also important to recognize that his win, you know, did not occur uh, in, in the same way that other wins have happened in our country. Uh, for the first time ever, we did have foreign interference in this election. And, you know, Robert Mueller testified earlier today to two committees and both asked him and he emphasized, uh, we can't look away from this. It is, he said, it is happening today. I noticed you were writing a statement before the podcast <laughs> for your New York office. So can you share it with us? What, what, what's, what's the official line from JDCA on today's hearings? Well, you know, we, importantly, <laughs> you know, we, uh, we want to emphasize that we think that defending our democracy and uh, you know ensuring every American has the right to vote and ensuring our elections are free and fair uh, is an important American value and yes Jewish value because it allows us to engage uh, as equals um, and you know it is important uh, it is important that we recognize that what Russia did in 2016 as Mueller said today is still occurring and there's a reason for that. That is because Republicans in Congress have failed to do anything about it. Keep in mind that our 16 intelligence agencies unanimously said in January of 2017 they put out uh, an unprecedented public report saying exactly that, what Mueller has reemphasized today but also is in his very lengthy report, uh, which is Russia uh, had a systemic operation of interference in our election. It, yes, it was manipulation of our of our social media, but also uh, you know infiltration of some of our state voter databases. Mm-hmm. It was a real effort to manipulate and interfere in our democracy, and it is real. By the way, you know I've read quite a bit on that, and apparently this has been going on for decades. You know, countries interfere with other countries' elections. Just now, there's this whole world of social media that makes it so much more insidious and lethal and and kind of dangerous and hard to catch. And I think this is what's added a, a different dimension. But from what I hear, I mean, this has been going on for forever, you know, and they did it. You know, they did it in the old days. We just, uh, it was just done the old-fashioned way with with, you know, with spies and, and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, and we don't know the extent of the damage they've done, which is really unfortunate. Me as a journalist, I'd like to see a book written on this, Haley. It really annoys me to, that we keep hearing about their interference, but we really have no hard evidence of how deep it went. Sometimes I read articles that said there was these cheesy memes on Facebook that really didn't make a difference. And then other times I hear people like you saying it really did make a difference. What's so, your thought on that? So I, I, I a few things. Um, one is that this is not uh, this is not the same old thing we've seen before. Yes, plus social media. No, no, this is unprecedented. 
You know, in the, when you say this, what, what is the this? Foreign is interference it? in our election. Russia interfered in our election. When and they released the WikiLeaks uh, Clinton memos, that was, that was there, pretty bad, There right? were multiple yeah. stages at which they, well, first of all, they infiltrated both the DNC and, our, Correct. and, and the RNC emails. They released the DNC, some of the DNC right. emails. But beyond that, um, you know, and again, don't take my word for it. Read, you know, there's a whole volume of the Mueller report dedicated to this, but also the initial uh, public documentation of this that came from the intelligence community in January of 2017, which has served as the basis of these investigations. Keep in mind, Mueller wasn't the only investigation. There's still an ongoing Senate Intelligence Committee investigation and House Intelligence Committee investigation. Importantly, it, it went well beyond that. And you know, whether it was messaging on social media or infiltrating state systems, and we've seen evidence anywhere between 24 and 37 states that they meddled uh, and looked, and no tallies, it looks like, were manipulated, but we don't know what they will do with this information going forward. And this is not some, you know, old to some of the same things they've done in the past. Yes, they have. Russia has interfered in uh, other European elections. They've tried to manipulate uh, public messages in the way that they did here in the United States. But we've never seen anything like this in a presidential election. All Americans should be shaken by this. But also they should be shaken by the following, which I'm going to tell you because I was there. The Senate under Republican control of Mitch McConnell, has obstructed every single effort to do something about this since January of 2017 in the 115th Congress, and now here we are in the 116th Congress. There have been multiple pieces of legislation introduced by Democrats, including some running for president, to secure our elections from the kind of interference that we've seen. And Republicans refused to take action on these on these efforts because they saw it as somehow delegitimizing Trump's win. Going back to his very fragile narcissistic ego that you referenced earlier, I understand why they might have felt that way. However, our democracy should not be a partisan issue. We're talking about the strength of our democracy. And it is so critical that if there's one takeaway from the Mueller uh, testimony today, he said a few important things. One, that he didn't exonerate the president. Two, that it wasn't a witch hunt. Three, that collusion isn't even a legal term. But four, this is happening. This Russian interference is happening still today. And there's a reason for it that he didn't say, but I'll say it. And that's because Republicans have refused to secure our democracy. So we are just as vulnerable as we were in 2016, in 2020. And that is a big concern that could should concern all Americans, Republicans and Democrats. You remember the Watergate scandal? You had two enterprising reporters. I'm looking for those two that write a book. Because sometimes the government, it just the wheels go too slowly. And then you need enterprising reporting to really get to the bottom of this. This strikes me as one of those. Per you live in D.C., right? Mm -hmm. Do you know anyone there? Any enterprising good reporter who wants to win a Pulitzer? Because <laughs> I am dying journalists. to get to the bottom of this to see I mean, how deep it went, how broad. You know, I mean, just utterly, I'm just fascinated. <laughs> there's as a, a reason. Journalist. There's a reason that the president has called the New York Times and the Washington Post and anyone else who writes about this fake news. First of all, it's not fake. You know, he characterizes anyone who disagrees with him as fake or un-American. But the reality is that he doesn't want us to to look into that. He doesn't want right, Congress to take action. But that's never stopped great reporters in the past. In yeah, fact, so we do September have some. 18. Was uh, a year ago the plot to subvert an election, unraveling the Russia story so far? I remember reading it, and I remember thinking, "Man, I wish I could read more. I'm looking for more." So that will be maybe my personal project: is to see how far journalism can go, independent of government. Hey, listen, I think it's yeah. very important, and and when we see the president uh, vilify. 
uh, journalists and and call them, you know, the fake news media and all the other nasty things that he has thrown their way, um, you know, or even even his he had this social media summit two weeks ago where he invited uh, anyone who wasn't critical of him. Uh, so it didn't include social media giants like Twitter and Facebook. It included, uh, you know, at one point he in invited an anti-Semitic cartoonist. Uh, you know, it included uh, extremists, right-wing extremists who have served as his uh, sycophants and amplifiers and only, you know, really uh, espousing his message, which at times has been quite dangerous and hateful. So I think, you know, we need to defend uh, the rights of journalists uh, because they are under attack by this president, frankly. Well, they were under attack by Obama, too, and he spied on some, uh, the Fox things. He, there was a lot of bad stuff that happened I under don't Obama. Know. David, are you reading Breitbart? You. No, 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 no. <laughs> There was the uh, surveillance of the uh, Fox reporter. There was at least two of them. There was the IRS stuff. The difference was that Obama was decent and he was a gentleman, and I really valued him for that. But there was all kinds of non-good actions. You never heard Barack in, Obama or, frankly, any other U.S. president uh, refer to journalists in no, the way no, this no. president of has referred not. to them. Most importantly, of to their not. face. If you've watched him in uh, the way he has treated journalists. Oh, oh, he's, has a, he's, been a, he's, he's a blowhard. He's, he's all of that. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, there's also actions and you can be a real decent gentleman and a nice guy and still take actions that undermine democracy. But, um, you know, I think it's important that you brought up Watergate because obviously I'm sure many of your listeners have li lived through that era where they probably thought that this was, you know, the biggest crisis that had happened in terms of an American democracy. Uh, that was to, um, you know, you had two people break into the DNC headquarters, right? This, by comparison, and granted there was the cover-up and all of that, um, by comparison, though, let us not in any way minimize what occurred in the 2016 election because you did have a foreign country, importantly an adversary of the United States, infiltrate our election. This was an assault on our democracy. And again, that should not be viewed through a partisan lens. Mm -hmm. We need to take steps to ensure it doesn't happen again. And Republicans have failed to do so. And that but, was my uh, takeaway from Mueller. But my concern really is that... Uh, there's so much we don't know about how this whole thing started. And we're hearing stuff that so much of it was fake news from Russia using steel. And there was some conflicts of interest and the GPS fusion connection with Clinton. There's so much stuff and there's some possible lying by the former FBI guys. So the whole beginning of this investigation, which is now being investigated itself, you know, I'm concerned that that's going to take up the rest of the time between now and the election in 2020. And that has nothing to do with Trump. I wouldn't go down the rabbit hole of every conspiracy theory that's out there about this. The reality is that Russia infiltrated our election system, tried to manipulate our election. Before Trump. Sure, right. yes. This, this started occurring in, you know, 16. And Obama did nothing to uh, investigate it. Fingers can be pointed uh, at both administrations for failing to take action. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that we have a president now who not only has failed to take action to defend against it, because I guess he, he viewed it as uh, advantageous for him to continue to allow uh, this to occur, but also Republicans in Congress. And they... They bear the responsibility. They swore an oath to the Constitution to defend, uh, to defend this country against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And if anyone reads, certainly the Mueller investigation, but uh, you know, again, this the findings of our intelligence community, they would see that we had a real threat. And I'm deeply concerned this would occur. This will occur again in 2020. Well, you know, this guarantees you another podcast here. Haley. We could talk about this. Oh, no, a year from now. <laughs> a year from now. Seriously, it'd be real fascinating. I mean, you know, I don't have a dog in the fight. I just kind of read everything left, right, and stuff. And I see where the facts take me. And there's some fishy stuff that happened, you know, at the very, very beginning. And I read about the FISA, the warrant, and so much fishy stuff that a whole guy steal was. Oy, don't get me started. It's a whole other podcast. But, it uh, is another podcast. Yeah. But, you know, on the day of the Mueller uh, testimony, I think it's important to note. And I know that Jewish voters care about the strength of our democracy. We do. And it shouldn't be viewed through a partisan lens. I read this fascinating defense of um, 
the Electoral College <laughs> last week. Fascinating, because it annoys so many people. You can win three million more votes and still not win, right? So how does a tiny little state have as much power as a huge state? And apparently, if you go back at the founders and Madison and so forth, this is exactly what they wanted. They didn't want big states to bully the small ones. They wanted the tiny ones to still have a voice. I found that so Jewish. <laughs> I'll send you the piece. Okay. <laughs> Seriously. The Jewish case for the Electoral College? Yeah. I'll send it to you. <laughs> so smartly written. It was like, no, no, no. This is exactly what they had in mind. Uh, yeah. Anyways, on that note, you're loving your job? I really? do love it. Yeah. You and I, we've started from the very beginning. <laughs> I, I do feel... Um, I feel that this is this organization is doing such important work. You've been what a year now in the job? Yeah, just a little over a year. Uh -huh. um, and uh, you know, I was in government for for many years, uh, about eighteen. And this uh, this work is so important, um, not only because it's uh, you know a reflection of of my values personally, but you know, the, a reflection of what I truly believe is is right, um, the kind of future that I want to help build for for my children, for uh, future generations. Um, we we are advocating for Jewish and democratic values. We're supporting candidates and elected officials who share those values, and we're advocating for political change consistent with those values. And one of those changes is going to be electing a Democrat to the White House. Wow, that's a uh we have some exciting months ahead. Obviously, you don't have preferences. Do you have contact with the uh, candidates? Yes. You? Yes, we are. Um, we are uh, serving as a resource to all the candidates. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes, we're not taking a position in the primary, but we are here as a resource for any candidate. I mean, we make all of our information public, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the Jewish concerns, priorities mm -hmm. of Jewish uh, of Jewish voters. Yes, and Jewish Democrats in particular. Next time you meet with them, um, there are 56 million Americans with one form of disability or another, physical, mental, and so forth. And, you know, they never brought it up at both debates. So mm -hmm. I'll send you the piece I wrote on that. Okay. I would love to see them uh, incorporate the Americans with disabilities and with, you know, what plans they have. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is uh, this it's is one of my issue. pet pet yeah. causes. Um, this is a very important issue and one that um, you know the Senate considered uh, years ago. I was, I've, I've worked in the Senate for some time. Uh, the ratification of the Convention on the, the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, and unfortunately, uh, Republicans obstructed it because they were not ratifying treaties. Um, but Democrats, importantly, were fighting for it. Um, and, you know, this is whether you look at it through the lens of international policy and, and international conventions or the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, which I believe was just marked its 25 years. Mm -hmm. uh, very important issue. Uh, I, you know, and, and it was one, well, I mean, it was technically two, but, you know, it was the first round of debates, right? We have another round next week. Uh, we're going to mm -hmm. have many debates. I'll send you my piece. Please okay. get it to them. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to Detroit, so I will. Oh, you will. <laughs> Fantastic. There are 20 million um, who are able to work and who are out of work uh, with disabilities. Issue. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Uh, Haley, I can't thank you enough for coming back to our studio. I love what you're doing and can't wait for our next one. Thank you. Appreciate Thanks. it. Thank you. Thank you.